Welcome to the Inspired by Adventure Podcast, Season 3, Unique Entrepreneurs. Here is your host, serial entrepreneur, Wayne Brown. Welcome to Inspired by Venture, Season 3. I'm Wayne Brown, serial entrepreneur and this season's host. We will be exploring the lives of fellow entrepreneurs, how they got started, what motivates them, and share their business experiences. Entrepreneurs are a different breed. We're risk takers. Gut feeling drives a lot of our decisions, and we thrive on change. We have learned what it takes to surmount difficulties and create success against all odds. The fact that we and our companies are still standing is evidence enough that we have a wealth of knowledge to share with all of you. Today we have as my unique entrepreneur, Doug McNeese. Doug is a current second generation dive shop owner and past owner of two scuba certification organizations, NASDS and SSI. SSI is one of the largest scuba certification organizations in the world. Welcome, Doug, and thank you for taking the time with me today. Thank you, Wayne. Uh, this is a genuine pleasure for me to have this opportunity to be able to speak to you, especially as a unique entrepreneur, your own self, <laughs> what you've done with your life. It's, it's uh, truly an honor. Thank you. So, you know, everyone's always interested in asking questions about, you know, successful entrepreneurs' backgrounds. So can you give our listeners a, a quick bio on, on Doug McNeese and how you got to where you are? <laughs> yeah, I guess I could. Um, my uh, beginnings in diving started when I was 10 years old. Uh, my mother and father started a dive center in uh, Memphis, Tennessee in 1961. And I have to tell you, we owned a jewelry store, a record store, and a toy store. And my dad set up, I'm going to work seven days a week. I'm going to do something I love and I enjoy doing. And so we had been watching Sea Hunt, and he got all in enthused in diving, and we opened up our store. Well, I wasn't uh, quite 10 years old, so I had to wait a year. But I learned to dive in 1962 uh, as the first young person he'd ever taught. And I have to tell you, the diving bug bit me and it stayed with me all through high school and college. And all I can say is that my dad was Scott and he was Irish. And he said, son, if you want it, you can have it, but you got to buy it. <laughs> so I ended up purchasing the business for my father in 1975, and it took me seven years to pay. And uh, quite frankly, it was a fun ride to do that as well. Uh, but yeah, so I got my start with him uh, and just fell in love with it. Worked every, every afternoon after school went, you know, from the time I was 13 years old. And so here I am. Uh, from there, we opened up... Um, three additional retail stores. Uh, one is in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. One is in uh, Joplin, Missouri, and another one in Little Rock, Arkansas. All of them have indoor pools today, um, which is the, in my opinion, the best way to go about having a dive center. But I had two passions. I had a retail passion, and I really wanted to build a business model that was sustainable without me being there. And then I wanted to challenge my second passion, which was training. So I was the director of education, if you will, for a certification agency called NASDS, National Association of Scuba Diving Schools. Uh, again, started very early, somewhere around the, the early 60s is when they started their business. And they became a target because they went through some difficult times. They didn't want to change with the times because they felt like they had the very best model ever because they were working hand in hand with Scuba Pro and NASDS were synonymous with one another and probably had 500 plus of the strongest retailers in the whole United States. But then Scuba Pro sold to Johnson and when it did, NASDS no longer had a head because they had no contractual arrangement whatsoever. And they tried everything, but it just didn't work. However, the foundation of the company was very, very good. So I made an offer in 1993 to buy the company and I moved it from California to Memphis. 
and five short years after really um, strong sales with revamping the entire educational system, I got a call from Bob Clark. Bob Clark is the founder and owner of Scuba Schools International. And he said, hey, Doug, we're heading down parallel paths because we're the only two agencies that work directly with retail dive centers. He said, why don't we put our two companies together? And so in 1999, I merged S excuse me, NASDS with SSI and I picked up my family and I moved to Colorado. And um, from there, in 2008, we bought the company and 2014, we sold the company to Head. Uh, and when I say we bought the company, it was myself and a, two business partners out of Germany, Robert Stoss and Guido Wedzig. And, and then in 2014, the opportunity came along to sell the company. And I'll tell you more about that maybe a little bit later on. But at the end of the day, my two passions are what driv drove me to do these two different businesses. And, you know, uh, I still love it as much today as I always did. And I always have to go out diving because diving is what keeps me energized. and makes me excited to get up every day and go to work. You know, Doug, um, a lot of businesses um, get passed on to second and third generations, um, typically uh, not as successful uh, because of the, 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 the learnings that the first generation went through to, to start the business and grow it. But you not only, only maintained it, you grew it into worldwide uh, businesses. So what, what, what did your father pass along to you that, um, that uh, filled those critical holes in uh, typical second generation failures? Again, this is my opinion, but I actually do believe that what my dad's smartest um, uh, passing to me was, is that one, I had to earn it. I couldn't just simply be given to you because if you give it to them, then it might not be worth as much to that person if they didn't have to earn it. So I had to earn it in every step of the way. I had to earn it when I was, um, I didn't tell you one little small part. We had a bag business because we struggled really hard in the early years in the diving business, as you can imagine in Memphis, Tennessee. We're not even close to any water whatsoever. And you certainly can't go diving in the Mississippi River. So it was a, a challenge to be able to do that. However, what he taught me was is that what you need to do, son, is you need to keep your focus on how you're going to market to the consumer that can afford uh, to do the sport that we have and take them places that they want to go. Because let's face it, Wayne, you know this better than anybody in the world. People don't come to us to learn to dive or buy equipment. They come to us because they want to experience the beauty of the underwater world and the lessons and the equipment are simply a means to an end. And they don't come to dive in just necessarily the lakes. Don't get me wrong. I believe that once a person gets excited about diving, they'll go dive in any mud hole with you. But what, they got to get excited first. And diving to me is that gin clear water, those colorful reefs and colorful fish. And that, that's what drove the business. So my dad simply said, you can have it, but you're going to have to purchase it. And earning that business, I think, is what made me look at everybody in our business and say, okay, do you want to be part of this long term? And how can I actually structure the business to where you can be part of this as well in order for us to grow? So um, I have to say that if you look back to 1993, that's uh, 28 years ago. Is that right? Yeah. 28 years ago, and uh, I've got managers still in place that have been with me for 30 years. So um, we, we're a great family and we do things together and we're still active and, and I'm still active, although not in the same level I was, but I do talk to our chief operating officer every Tuesday morning at 6.30 a.m. And then he has a meeting with the rest of the staff on Wednesdays the same way. And we just kind of keep things moving. Well, that's great, Doug. It's glad that, uh, to see that, you know, um, there's successful um, businesses that get passed on to generation to generation out there. 
You know, everybody that starts a business um, starts it because they think there's a there's a niche to fill. There's a gap that's not being filled. Either either the the gap is uh, nobody's in that space, or you think you can do it a lot better than the the people that are already in that space. So, what what made you decide that uh, when you purchased NASDS that there was there was a a, a niche out there that um, had a lot of uh, potential to to uh, create a, a profitable business? Well, there were there were three actual three factors for me, uh, Wayne. <clears throat> I was fortunate living in Memphis, Tennessee, um, and um, there was a guy by the name of Mike Rose, who uh, is the guy that actually sold uh, Holiday Inns to the uh, Bass Group out of uh, UK, and um, and he became a dear friend and a diver, and. Um, he started Promus, which is um, Hampton Inns, Embassy Suites, uh, Homewood, all that good stuff. He started that company. And um, there's another guy by the name of uh, Pitt Hyde with uh, AutoZone and another guy by the name of Fred Smith with Front Express. These are all guys that I simply said, hey, guys, tell me, what was it that made you so successful? And they said, business systems that the least skilled person can carry out. So the first thing I had to do was is not be able to walk away from my business until I had those business systems in place that the least skilled person could carry out and the system would make the business continue to run. As you, you know better than anybody, Wayne, the, the real success of any business is being able to walk away and it continue without you. So I had this, I don't know, insatiable, urge <laughs> to do the next thing in my life, which was training. And NASDS was my home. I mean, that's where I grew up in training. And I knew that the foundation of that training was incredible. But what I also knew was it lost its head. It lost its leadership. And the company started going down and people were leaving NASDS left and right. And they were going to the only place they could, which was SSI, another uh, retail organization. So my thought was, you know what you need to do, Doug? There, there is this space and there is this window of opportunity if you get it and you do what needs to be done to make the education system strong again, these customers will come running back home. And guess what? That's exactly what happened, Wayne. So what we did is we simply bought the company, moved it to Memphis, and we revamped all the education material. Here's an example. An eight and a half by 11, spiral bound, full color student manual. It was almost like a coffee table piece that you could lay out. And when you opened it up, what was it full of? Exactly what customers wanted the colorful reefs and the colorful fish and got the emotion involved in the diving the way it should be. And I think that's what was missing in the industry. And quite frankly, it wasn't me that started that company. It was me finding the holes in that company that I could make it strong again. And therefore we grew and we grew rapidly over a five year period of time which is why Bob ended up picking up the phone and calling me and say, hey, let's put us two, our two companies together. Well, what they were good at was education. And what I was good at was sales. And so when you put those two things together, it just made a good sense for us to be together. The other part of that equation was I didn't want to be bought. So I wanted to become an owner of that company because in my opinion, Every time you do something with your company, you're not doing that for your own personal benefit. You're doing that for the benefit of the people that can see how they're going to be able to use your product. And therefore, you make the whole company grow and everybody inside that company grow. So that was our, our motive. Uh, and it, it seemed to work just perfectly. You know, it's interesting you bring up the... Um, uh, uh, topic of making sure that the companies can run without you. Um, with my background in the restaurant industry, I've had several local 
uh, friends, people that become friends that had uh, sandwich shops and, and small restaurants. And, and uh, of course, we're, we're thinking big, you know, always wanting to look at maybe one day franchising and creating their own company. And, and I always gave them the advice that, that, you know, you have made this business all about you. And the problem is you can't step away from it now and it'd be successful. <laughs> and, and I've even seen that a little bit in the scuba industry with some of the specialty training, um, like uh, 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 law enforcement and, 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 and rescue, where I've had people that looked at buying some of those businesses, but all the contracts they had was only because it was a personal relationship with the current owner. And therefore, really, you know, there was nothing to buy um, for a long term uh, benefit for them. For yeah, sure. Very good. Very good point that that every entrepreneur that is looking to create a business or, or expand their business needs to uh, be aware of for sure. And every time you make another step, it can't be about you. It's got to be about the growth of the company. And which leads me to the second part of your question. And that is, what did we do with when we merged? Well, we merged with a the idea of taking the company and again, revamping the educational materials. But SSI was a more of a global brand than NASDS was. NASDS was really concentrated on the United States. And the idea was just to grow on the international basis. And so um, as we did that, then guess what started to happen? Um, other companies started looking at us as well. And so we got a phone call in the fall of 2013 uh, from Head. And it was one of the, the, the key players there at Head that, that made the phone call and said, hey, would you be interested in uh, putting uh, SSI under the Head umbrella? And here's why we would like to do that. Well, they didn't realize this, but what we had been talking about was how do we take the company digital? Because <laughs> the reality is, is that with Robert Stoss and, and Guido and myself as the three people that were actually running the company at that time, because we, pur we purchased the company in 2008 from the Clark family, um, our, our whole goal was to take the company digital. So we had our um, product development team already build the container. We knew what we wanted to do, but we also knew what it was going to take to take 60 plus products and put them into so many different languages. It was gonna be a, a monumental task and we were gonna need a whole lot more IT than we did. And this was just the perfect opportunity. Well, the opportunity for them was, is they also own a diving division called Mares. And so therefore, when you put those two pieces together, you're gonna to get synergies from both companies. So again, every time we've made a move, it's not been about us. It's been about the growth of the company because we know one day we're not going to be in those seats, you know? And so that's kind of what uh, took place with the progression, if you will, Wayne. Sure. So Doug, you know, every successful business um, has to keep up with the times, keep changing. We all, we could all name off a handful of major corporations that are no longer around because they 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 failed to to change so how did how do you um as your training agency decided when and what to to change to make sure you continue to be successful we watch trends um and we we actually listen to what those trends are um when we started seeing that people were referring to their mobile devices some 125 times a day, we realize we've got to be where the customer is. We have to be in the palm of their hand or on their tablet or on their computer. We've got to be in front of their face. And so we took a bold step and 2014 after building container before the before head bought the company, um, we literally took that bold step and we turned our product into digital product. And we launched that in January of 2015. We just ripped the Band-Aid off and said, here it is. Did a lot of customers like it? Yes. Did a lot of customers not like it? Absolutely. You're always going to have that mix. But if you're going to move forward and you've got to be cognizant of the consumer, then you're going to have to realize you're going to have to drag some of those people along with you. Ironically, some of those people who got upset ended up going, you know, this is the greatest thing you ever did. So it, it, it's always hindsight, I guess, when you look at it. 
And really, Wayne, we thought what would take place is that 30% of our customers would want digital and 70% of our customers would want physical product. Boy, we wrong. In 2015, it was 70-30. 70% of the customers wanted the digital product and only 30% wanted physical. I can tell you as a worldwide company, last year, we now have 68 products in 41 languages. You can be in Thailand and click on the open water diver program and then click on the language that you want and you can get your materials in whatever language is your native tongue in order for you to be able to take the program. I can also tell you that that opened up doors for us all over the world, which is why we did it in the first place, because shipping physical product to destinations that are far reaching is so hard to do and they're they're outdated and they don't get changed. And how do you update your materials quickly without throwing stuff away? I mean, it was just all the logistical stuff that went with it. But the real beauty of all of this is that our customers are the ones that's completely satisfied with the fact that everything is at the touch of their finger. Did we have challenges? Did we have problems? Absolutely. No question about it. Did we work through all of those? Absolutely. And I will tell you the result of that was in 2020, for the world, we sold 800 manuals, physical manuals. Not 8,000, not 800,000, 800 physical manuals. So you tell me, Wayne, was that a successful venture for us? We say yes, because we're paying attention to the customer. You know, I, um, a lot of my friends know, and we all, a lot of us, uh, close friends, we consume quite a bit of uh, fiction reading. Um, and so when the, when the Apple came out with the iPad, um, I said, well, let me try this, this digital reading and, and see how I like it. And so I don't know how long, how many years ago that was, but I was having lunch yesterday, actually with, a, with another couple, a friend of mine, my wife and I, and he was telling me about a used bookstore in town that had great deals on, on books. And I, and I, and I didn't say anything to him, but I'm thinking, why would I ever pick up a physical book when I've got access to millions of them on my iPad? And, and, and you know, it's just, uh, definitely the way. Uh, you know, the uh, technology is going and, and, and uh, very beneficial, especially on your part from a, from a um, uh, 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 perspective of, of the cost of change, like you mentioned. I mean, you can, you can, you can tweak a, a misspelling and it's immediately um, corrected in, in the millions of copies that are out there. Throughout all the world in 41 languages, done. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the what we call the education management system that sits, sits in the background, all I can tell you is it's probably the most robust system with so many elements, it's unbelievable, but guess what? It makes everything look perfect out there on the front end. And at the end of the day, Wayne, you said, what do we do? Well, you gotta keep up with the trends. If you're not keeping up with the trends, you know, change is, is inevitable. There's nothing we're gonna do to stop change. It just means, are you going to be in front of the curve? You're going to be behind the curve, or are you just not going to go be in the curve at all? <laughs> so we want to be in the, in the front of the, of the consumer. So that's how we monitor what's going on about how to change things. I mean, when you look at diving, how much has it evolved? It's evolved amazingly, not from just recreational, but from free diving and from mermaiding, for goodness sakes. I mean, there are mer, mer women and mer men out there, you know? And so uh, it, it's a popular thing in Asia, uh, rebreathers, you know, and technical diving. I mean, there's so many different facets that how do you keep up with all that? Well, there's only one way and that's to make sure you do it digital because otherwise it's, it's a monumental task just to keep the materials up to date. Sure. Sure. So uh, switching gears here a little bit, when um, when I bought Aggressor Adventures back in uh, 2007, it was uh, at that time, it was a, exclusively a, a liveaboard uh, a diving operation. Uh, and already being myself a, a certified scuba diver for years had really helped me with credibility to the new staff I now um, uh, had and to um, our, our um, licensees and our, and our worldwide customers. Um, so how important was it 
um, that you were uh, not only a diver, but a dive shop owner to the success of uh, NASDS and SSI um, with your customers and your staff? Incredibly uh, important. Our competitors tried to use that against us when in fact the customer said, this is the greatest thing ever uh, because he, here's somebody that actually has walked a mile in my shoes, still is walking a mile in my shoes and can answer the questions that I need answered for what would be best practices. Um, to layer onto that, Wayne, what we did was back in 2000, realizing that this was something that was really important to all of these bricks and mortar stores, we created a program called Scuba University. And uh, I have to tell you that to date, we have taught that program all over the world, number one, but you know, we, we taught it probably in 14 different languages that we've actually taught the program. I was in Korea back in 2019, you know, with, uh, and I don't speak a word of Korean, but yes, we had a translator there and we did the program for them as well. Ironically, the uh, retailers, if you will, um, no matter where they're sitting, whether it's in Germany, Italy, or in Korea, there it's always the same set of concerns, issues, and solutions, if you will, to making their businesses tick. And so um, I truly believe that that was a benefit uh, to NASDS and to SSI, that I was a owner uh, of a retail business and I understood what was happening. So, you know, most entrepreneurs are, are very creative people. And once they set their mind to creating uh, their, their business, then they have to, to try to prioritize their, their 20 ideas in their head. How do you, uh, even after you started your business, how do you go about prioritizing what you think is going to be the best return for you and your customers? I have this conversation with the managers every day. Um, first off, I, I literally th have to do the brain bank thing. So we get together and we talk about, you know, what, what are the, the, the trends? What are the things we need to be looking at? Where, where are we missing some dollars that are walking through the door? And then what we do is we sit down and say, okay, there's a list of 10. So now where are we going to put these in place? Are we going to put this at one? We're going to put this at 10. Where are we going to put these in place? But what I find is, Wayne, is even when you get that idea, then that idea has got another 10 or 15 or 20 components to it. So what I do is I start my day every day with a list. <laughs> and if I don't have that list, then I don't get those things done. But when I start my day with that list, then I can tick those things off until that idea becomes a reality. And that's the only way I know to do anything is that you got to have a plan for it in order to be able to implement it. Because having the idea is one thing. Implementing it is a completely different deal as you well know better than anybody because you do it every day in your own business yeah I've, I've come across a lot of um potentially successful entrepreneurs that have some fantastic ideas but they can't ever seem to execute them which obviously um, doesn't uh, help uh, help the business become as successful as, as it could have been so you know with uh with scuba diving in particular, you know, um, customer engagement is so, so important, but, you know, once you get scuba certified, you really can, you know, continue on diving the rest of your life without, without um, stepping back into a dive shop or, or doing any more training. So how did you work to keep those customers engaged and continuing to come back? There's, in my opinion, there's three pillars of, of diving, <clears throat> training, equipment, and travel. That's the three pillars of diving. And, you have to look at the business based on a model. We call that model the customer loyalty cycle. So you acquire a customer, then you develop them into a diver. There's a lot of people that learn to dive, but there are not a lot of people that become divers because a diver understands then that they need to make an investment in the equipment so they get committed to the sport. And then you have to have lots of activities to retain them. So those activities have to be centered around things that are local, which is training, right? And then things that are local, which is diving locally. And along with that, you have to have your international trips that you run as well. 
So to me, Wayne, it, it's not one facet, it's four facets of you keeping this, I'm going to call it the perpetual wheel, if you will, of acquisition, development, commitment, and retention turning. And the only way to do that is to make sure that each one of those steps are implemented to the point where every single customer understands that what you do, whether they end up becoming a diver or not, that you're going to, to stay with them no matter how long it takes to make them comfortable in the environment. And therefore, you've done your job. And now you hope that the customer will do the exact same thing with you. Our success today is still exactly that. I find that uh, when we do a really great job at training, customers reward us with their purchases and then they travel with us. And when they travel with us, they also learn the need for all these other classes that we do. And so we continually um, work toward keeping people active in our business and doing it with all the greatest customer service we can possibly give them. Because to me, Wayne, diving is all about the experience. If a customer has an incredible experience, they're gonna tell all their friends and you're gonna grow your business. You know, scuba diving is such a, such a or scuba diving shops and training is such a customer focused and centric business. Are there unique philosophies or, or, or characters you'd look for when you were filling positions at your dive shop or with the training agencies to make sure you, you were able to build a winning team? Um, people ask me all the time, where do you find good people? I said everywhere. <laughs> I remember um, this uh, young girl was at, we were at home for Christmas. Um, so um, being from Memphis, uh, I always went back for Thanksgiving and for Christmas. And, um, and I was sitting in this restaurant having uh, dinner with my family. And this little girl could not have been more attentive than anybody I've ever had uh, wait on my table. I mean, she was just amazing. And so I finally looked at her and asked her, I said, um, have you ever thought about working retail? <laughs> she said, well, no. And I said, uh, she said, what do you do? And I said, diving. And she said, well, I've always wanted to be a diver. I said, well, we can make that happen. I said, but I just love your attitude. You have a wonderful attitude. You're, you're, you're all about the customer and making sure that they're taken care of. I said, I would, I would hire you in a minute. Well, believe it or not, that ended up being that she came to the store. We hired her and um, she, I don't know, as a commission salesperson, she did so much better than she was doing in a restaurant. And, uh, and she left. Uh, because she got married and moved off to North Carolina or South Carolina or whatever. And when she left, I cried because she was just that good with customers. So to me, it's all about finding people who love what they do, understand that it's the customer that's actually paying our salaries and our rent and everything else that goes on. And I can train them to dive. By the time she left, she was a dive master. So uh, she was there for at least five or six years. I don't remember exactly how long, but it was a long, a long period of time. So I always look for the good qualities of people, people that are, have a positive attitude, number one, uh, that, you know, love being um, outdoors. They love the water. Uh, they got to love the water <laughs> and, and that they have a, uh, an insatiable urge to want to dive, even if they're not a diver. So, We've started a lot of people in that place. I hired a girl that's still with us today that runs our Memphis store um, that was at Walgreens, for goodness sakes. And she was just that good. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm always looking for people that have a great attitude and are positive people and they get up excited to go to work in the morning. You know, when I had the restaurants, um, a lot of my restaurant managers, of course, never had formal training in, in HR and, and interviewing techniques and, and would always ask me, how do I make sure when I interview somebody that I'm coming away with, with, the, with uh, either I want to hire them or I don't and, and reasons why. And because and they, they would come away from the interview and they really wasn't sure, you know, what, uh, what, what, they, what decision they should make. And, and so we, we had a little internal training program for managers just called border attitude it was all about 
you, you can't change their attitude, but you can train somebody to do just about everything. So higher on attitude first. And, and that was, that was always um, an easy way to, to, to help the managers figure out who they wanted to hire and, and train uh, for their, for their stores. Part of my uh, Scooby-U programming, it says those words exactly. Hire for attitude over skill. I can teach skill. I can't teach attitude. Exactly. And you <laughs> so, can't change it either. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um, so continuing on with uh, customer service, um, a couple of years ago, uh, another couple and my wife and I were, were customers of this uh, the same business. And he had a, a small problem with them um and and uh told me about it and i was like yeah I, you know i don't know if that's big enough for me to even be worried about but he said you know it kind of bothers me so i'm going to call the company and, and speak to him so he called me back you know a few days later and he said i, I called and they wouldn't let me talk to anybody and I said, what do, you, what do you mean they wouldn't let you talk to anybody? He said, well, I called and, and the receptionist said that that's the, their policy is that I tell her what my problem is and she'll find out an answer from, from up the chain and the, and the company. It's a small privately owned business. And I said, you get, you, you, you're kidding me, right? I mean, there's just no way that anybody would run a small business that way. So, and, and being so um, outside of what I considered a, a normal way to run a business, I called. I said, hey, I, you know, I had the same problem with this guy uh, that he had, but I wasn't going to call about it because I wasn't concerned. But, but I think I have a new problem now, which is, you know, he said he called and he couldn't talk to anybody. And she said, yeah, that's right. That's our policy. I said, you're, you're really, you're kidding me, right? I mean, so if I want to talk to, you know, your boss or the boss's boss or even the owner of the company, I can't talk to them. I can't have their email address or a number. She said, no, no, that's, that's our policy. And I said, okay, well, I, I, I'm floored that that's your policy, but I'm going to take my business somewhere else. And so I've never done business with him again. Now, knowing you and, and your business, that obviously is, was not, is not your policy, that everybody has access um, all the way to you. Was that how you ingrained the, the, the culture of the Absolutely. company from day Somebody one? Somebody walks in the store app today, and I can tell you, if you picked up the phone and called any one of the four stores, this is what they would tell you. If somebody walks in the store and they've got a problem, the first thing you say is not to worry, we'll take care of it. That's the first thing that comes out of your mouth. And everybody, we have an open door policy. Everybody can talk to the most important person in the business if that's what you think you need. But we empower every single employee to take care of the customer at the counter. And that means that they bought it from us. We can either fix it or we can replace it, but we're going to take care of the customer at all costs. And that's been our policy since my dad taught me uh, back in, in the, the, the 70s. That's been our policy. And I think it's our calling card in what we do. And I feel the same way about SSI. SSI is a much harder way to do that because there's so many levels, if you will, but if you empower the people on the phone to be able to take care of customers, that's what they're supposed to do, take care of the customer. Not, and not in all instances, instances because of liability is that possible, but in a, in a retail store, absolutely. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine me not being able to tell a small business owner about a problem that I have and them not caring. You know, I mean, that just, that doesn't even compute to me, Wayne. It just, that, that, <laughs> that's a tough one for me. I, 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 you I know. On that. If, you, if you don't care about me, I don't care about you. I'll find somebody else that I can do business with. Um, you know, every business um, uh, has to change its, its, its model and the way it does business, um, mainly because customers' uh, expectations um, change constantly. What, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen uh, from customer expectations in the last 20 or 30 years? Um, you know, uh, regardless of how you do what you do, regardless of whether or not you're in the specialty business or in any other kind of business, we all have something to contend with that we didn't have to contend with many years ago. And that's the internet. Um, people come in today, they are um, well-versed about education, they're well-versed about equipment, and therefore you can't sneak up on them and you can't tell them anything that's not true. You gotta tell them the truth regardless. And then you gotta earn their business. And guess what? 
I can tell you that um, there's a new trend and people that shop over the internet, they're getting tired of the idea that they buy something, then they have to ship it back and then they got to pay the shipping and they end up eating into the money that they've already spent. And it just, it's becoming more and more of, a, of an issue. Now with commodities, no, but with specialty things, it definitely is. And so I believe that that is a, the biggest change is that customers come in and they absolutely know what it is that they're looking for because they've done their research. And, and when somebody's done their research, you just gotta be straight and narrow with customers. And when you are, customers appreciate that and therefore they wanna do business with you. It's when people feel like they're being hoodwinked, if you will, that they're, they're not happy or comfortable being in your business. And so um, that's the biggest change that I think I've seen. The second thing that I've seen is, um, the consumer themselves. Um, we are seeing a much uh, younger consumer. Um, I would say that <clears throat> our base business, Wayne, for all the years I can remember, has been a 35 to 54 year old with the disposable income. I mean, I can go back into the years and years ago and just tell you that that's what it's always been. Doesn't mean we don't pick up people on either side of that equation, but the bulk of our business comes from that window. <clears throat> We're starting to see now that um, some of the younger generation, and I'm talking about now in the probably 25 to 35 year old window uh, are coming in and they are already in a place where they're making the money that they go, you know what? I don't need a big fancy car and a house and all the things that other people need. All I wanna do is be able to uh, experience life. So we're seeing a consumer out there that wants to experience life. Are those customers the ones that stay with things as much as the other customer? Maybe not. Maybe they're checking things off their list and they're doing this and then they're going on to the next thing. I don't know. But um, I still find that the bulk of our business comes from that 35 to 54 year old and they, they wanna travel. And that's what we really try to focus on is taking those people traveling. Um, so moving on to, um, the, the, the entrepreneurs that, that ask me a lot of questions about, um, uh, uh, financial cycles, you know, every business has ups and downs. You know, we've obviously been through several, uh, you and I just in the past, um, 15, 20 years, what keeps you motivated to, um, keep your head up and keep pushing forward when you have those, those down cycles? <laughs> well, First off, there's not just me anymore. There's a lot of people depending on me. <laughs> and I'm talking about all of the people with inside the, the family of the store. Um, but the reality is, is that I find that in every, I'm going to call it a crisis. I mean, we go back, we can go back to just 2008 when the global financial crisis happened, you know? Um, in all of, those crises, what I find is people are looking for a way to um, escape those kinds of things. And as long as we keep our head down and keep focused on what it is that we're trying to accomplish, then guess what? Those things don't seem to be part of the equation. It's when we wallow in those things and we become um, our whole focus is about the crisis as opposed to about what, what could be, we could be doing. That's what changes your business. And I think that's when people uh, start to fall, if you will. So we just simply beef up training and we beef up our travel. Maybe we retract our travel into some of the more local places, like if you will, from Memphis, going down to Florida, going down to the Keys, you know, maybe we can't sell as many of the, the more high priced expensive trips. But I also find that the customers that we market to have money and therefore, even in those times of need, they still have money. 
And so as long as you just don't lose your way, I think that you, you, you make it through each one of those, those types of things that happen. Um, COVID, same, same identical thing. You know I mean? Just look at what just happened here in 2020. Yeah, was there a hiccup there for 60 or 90 days? Absolutely. But what do you do? You keep moving forward because there are people out there that are still going to continue to come and do business with you. It's just a change of the way you do things, Wayne, I think. And, and um, keep a positive attitude and keep moving forward. I, I'm, I'm looking for those true words of wisdom, but I think it's just keeping your nose to the grindstone and keep pushing forward is the only thing you can do. Look at you. Look at what happened with you. Look, I mean, your whole business is based on travel. <laughs> so look at what happened to you for 20, in 2020. I mean, so I'm looking for the words of wisdom, but I'm finding it's just buckling down and pushing forward. You know, every time there's uh, external factors that I can't control that, that um, affect the business, um, you know, I've never been one to say, well, it's, I, I, I can't do anything about it. I've always been the one that says, okay, I'm going to come to the office at five in the morning because I know there's at least a dozen ideas I can come up with to overcome this, this external factor. I just haven't thought of them yet. And so <laughs> so I, I'm always in there thinking, okay, I, you know, there's no uh, insurmountable um, uh, external force that I can't get over. I just got to figure out the, the road that leads to the other side. You're right. And, and the reality is, Wayne, is that, you know, um, I, I, if, I, if I may, I, I, a good example of that. Um, you picked up the phone and called me and said, Hey, Doug, what do you think about a $300 voucher to every person that takes an SSI class? I mean, <laughs> what a great idea, because once again, it's an incentive for both companies. It's an incentive for people to sign up for a trip. It's an incentive for people to come and take a class. What a wonderful idea. Um, same thing goes for us. During COVID, we knew we weren't going to see the open water diver. So what did we do? We marketed to our um, already certified divers about specialty training. And we did, uh, you know, uh, buy two, get one free. You know, we did your offer of the $300 for a trip for future travel. Well, you know, we did anything and everything that we could to keep people engaged all the way up the ladder to professional training. So we just shifted a little bit, if you will, and what we did. But at the end of the day, we were just simply focused on the customers that we had because one in the hand is worth two in the bush, you know. So you got to make sure you're working on the ones that are in front of you. Um, Doug, have you have you had... Um mentors or, or confidants that that you want to talk about that have that help you stay focused and and either giving you advice or you used as a sounding board uh, during your your um, times as an owner yeah I, I i mentioned it earlier but mike rose was goodness gracious uh, just a a prince of a gentleman here's a guy that had so much wealth and yet he took time with me you know this dive store owner and i because i had aspirations of having a hundred dive stores and all this kind of stuff and he said slow down slow down let's just get one or two or three or four you know maybe get 10 but but slow down and um and i listened to everything that he had to say and then i also uh put myself in circles of friends like mike that could give me advice uh because i was young uh, my dad was gone. He was, uh, I, we bought the business in 75 and paid for it in 82 and he died in 1983. And so my dad was gone and I still needed help if I was going to be able to expand the business and also build a, a business model that my staff could follow and that I didn't have to be there. And so I, I really felt um, that Mike Rose was a part of that puzzle. Pit Hyde, to a smaller degree with AutoZone, uh, was a part of that puzzle on because he confirmed everything that Mike Rose had already told me, and Fred Smith being the same way. Um, funny enough, Mike Rose ended up marrying uh, Debbie Fields with Mrs. Fields Cookies, uh, and she, um, she was an amazing person as well. Um, and so I listened to a lot of her um, 
I'm going to say business advice, just because the fact is, how in the world do you become mega wealthy selling cookies? But she did. And Mrs. Hill's cookies is its own success story today. So what can I say? So yeah, I've had mentors along the way. Um, and some of those are not always um, big and powerful people. They're uh, young entrepreneurs like, uh, you know, you, you want to help them and them help you at the same time because what you really need in your business, Wayne, and this is my personal opinion, you have to always be training your replacement. And when you train your replacement, ironically enough, those replacements have better ideas than you ever had. And then you have to keep good people around you all the time that can do a better job than you ever could. So that's, I guess that's my advice. Well, as we uh, as we wrap it up here um, today, Doug, is there any any last minute um, advice you would give to any entrepreneurs that are just starting out and and where they should should um, focus? Make their sure your idea is crystal clear that of what you want to do, because if it's crystal clear, you can start down that road and then you can make course corrections along the way. But I find that when somebody just has an idea and they start off and, and they don't know the business essentials, they don't understand the business plan, the total cost of ownership, all those parts and pieces, Wayne, are the, they're, they're are the difference, if you will, of being a hobbyist and a business person. And I don't care what that business is. I don't, it doesn't matter if they're going in the restaurant business or whether they're going in a dive business they have to be crystal clear about the details that it's gonna to take to get that business started. And then realize it's gonna be three to five years before you're gonna see any fruits of your labor because you're gonna be working hard to, to, to pay the piper and keep cash flow going in order for you to be able to do that. So to me, it's just that your idea cannot just be a whimsical, a whimsical idea, it has to be a a crystal clear idea of what it is you want to do. Uh, you know, as a final um, thought, I was on a, um, I was a guest speaker at a dive club, virtual dive club uh, last week. And uh, one of the, I asked if you just opened it up to questions and one of them said, you know, how many trips do you take? And I said, I, I, I usually schedule three and I usually end up on four because it's, it's uh, just, uh, I, you know, I have to spend time back in the office and, and, and run the business. And uh, he said, well, if I was in your position, I'd be out every month, you know, going somewhere <laughs> diving and, and river cruising and, and uh, safari. I said, well, you know, in an ideal world, maybe that, that sounds great, but unfortunately, you know, the business comes first and I have to spend the time here in the office, managing my staff, managing the, the, all the changes that we come up with and the IT that we're, we're moving along. And, but, you know, I do get to go out a few times a year and, and enjoy it. So, um, you know, that is a, is a benefit, but certainly you've got to, you know, keep, uh, keep focused that, you know, the business is, uh, comes first and, and, uh, you know, work um, whatever hours you have to, to, to make sure it's, um, stay successful. Absolutely. You know, it, working hard is the, um, if the, if the idea is crystal clear, working hard should not even be a question. And you're, you're so right. So many people, especially in our industry, so many people get involved because they're hobbyists with virtually no business experience or anywhere to receive it. And, and then they, we wonder why there's attrition in the diving industry. So um, I, I'm a big believer that we need to help every, everybody out there, but make sure your idea is crystal clear and you got the finances to be able to support that until you get to the place where you're actually making the money. All right. So we're going to, Doug, I think we're going to wrap it up. Um, so you've been listening to Doug McNeese and uh, his journey to turn scuba diving into a worldwide success story. Doug, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so very much, Wayne. It's been a pleasure being with you. I look forward to doing these kinds of things with you in the future. Thanks for tuning into the Inspired by Adventure podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you haven't already, please subscribe through iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next time.